The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Chapter 10 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Beggar Pete. The street lights showed mistily, like vague, filmy patches in the darkness. It was raining in torrents, pitilessly. The water dripped from the brim of Smarlinghue's old felt hat, and beating into his face, soaked the bandage around his cheek, threatening to displace it. He smiled grimly in reminiscence, as he raised his hand and tightened the dressing a little in its place. It was four nights ago now since his accident when he had made his escape from Peddler Joe's window, and subsequently had saved himself by playing the dual role in the imaginary fight he had staged between Smarlinghue and the Grey Seal in the sanctuary, and since then the character of Smarlinghue had virtually been a little old man of the sea that had clung with almost sinister tenacity to him, and that he had not been able to shake off and discard as before at will. It was strange. A queer trick of fate, perhaps, and not an over-kindly one, for it had tied his hands, and for the moment had left him seriously crippled in his efforts to pick up the clues already found and lost so many times, that must eventually, if there were ever to be life and freedom for the toxin, happiness for himself and the woman that he loved, lead to the phantom. Jimmy Dale's face grew hard, anxious, perturbed. Things had not gone well in those four days. Smiling you, if such a thing were possible when his life itself had been the stake, had played his part too well that night in the sanctuary. Already one of the acknowledged aristocracy of the underworld, he had been suddenly elevated to the status of little less than demigod. Smilinghue had been in actual, physical combat with the Grey Seal. Smilinghue had become the idol of a morbid awe and curiosity. It was subsiding now, but while it lasted it had made the disappearance of Smilinghue, even for a few hours, far too dangerous a move to consider. He had been too much the attraction, too much on exhibition, as it were. But even if this had not been so, there was still another, and perhaps even stronger, reason that had temporarily chained him to the role of the drug-wrecked artist and to the environment of the sanctuary. The underworld had eyes and ears, and so too had the police, while still more to be feared as one who seemed to reach out with cunning versatility into so many different spheres as one who, of all others, would have his suspicions the most quickly aroused, there was the phantom. Jimmy Dale, if he had returned to his ordinary life, would have had to do so with a bandaged face 
curiously like Smarlinghue's. It invited far too much. And so he had telephoned to Jason, that peer of butlers, that he'd been called out of town for a few days, and whatever personal fears the old man might have entertained for the safety of his young master, whom, as he was wont to say, he had dandled on his knee as a child, Jason could be trusted to account, both ingeniously and to the entire satisfaction of anyone interested, for the temporary absence of Jimmy Dale from his usual haunts. In a personal sense, therefore, there had been no serious cause for anxiety. But in those four days it seemed, somehow, as though a wall, impenetrable, thick, had been reared across his path, halting him, and shutting out from both sight and hearing those things that concerned him far more than the consideration of his own security. There had been no word from the toxin, no note, no sign, no straw of evidence out of the whispered confidences in the hidden places of the underworld that he could grasp at as indicative of even her continued existence. The old question gnawed at his heart. Was she still alive tonight? What move had the phantom made in those four days, and if any, had the man with his hell-born cunning been at last successful? The days had been as a blank. Even Mother Margot had been denied him, for no mask could have hidden the bandages from her eyes. But yet, after all, he had not been idle. He had done what he could. The wave of notoriety that for the moment had swept him to a pinnacle high above his fellows of the underworld had seemed to present the only opportunity for activity left open to him, and he had seized upon it to cultivate the very men who were unconsciously responsible for the ruse to which he had been forced to resort that night in the sanctuary to save his life, the men who had hammered at his door, voicing for the moment the one rallying cry that alone could unite the myriad vicious interests of gangland in one common bond. Death to the Grey Seal. And in a measure he had been successful, though, as far as results had gone, he might, it seemed, have saved himself the effort. Bunty Myers, Muller, and the rest, Gentleman Laroque's, alias the Phantom's, gang, had admitted him, rather pleased to bask in his reflected glory, to their hangout in the upstairs rear room of Wally Kerrigan's ill-favoured club, which was half restaurant, half gambling den, and the resort of the worst in the Badlands. But he had learned nothing. They had loafed and smoked and played cards and drunk an amazing quantity of liquor, but that was all. There had always been Bunty Myers and Muller, and at times as many as three or four more. But had he, Jimmy Dale, not known that back of it all, Gentleman Laroque, unseen, held these men in allegiance, he never would have discovered it there. He had learned nothing. But though to-night, for perhaps the first time, he could have dispensed with the bandages to the extent of at least being able to use the black silk mask without the risk of Mother Margot suspecting the tell-tale hurt that lay beneath, he was on his way now to Kerrigan's again as the first part of his night's work. Afterwards, he shrugged his shoulders, afterwards he would see. Certainly there was always a chance at Kerrigan's. He felt that he had already worked himself into an intimacy that was not far from breeding confidences. Their apparent inaction was also not without its measure of satisfaction, and this in itself alone was worth knowing. It might very well, and probably did, augur that the phantom, too, was for the moment inactive, that there was a momentary stagnation, as it were, 
in that master crook's field of endeavour, and— Jimmie Dale stopped short. He was opposite the swinging doors of a saloon run by one Gypsy Dan, from which there emanated a stentorian-lunged voice, high-pitched in song, accompanied by the thumping of many fists evidently upon the bar, and the stamping of many feet obviously upon the floor. Subconsciously, he was now aware, he had heard the row half a block away. It was not by any means a select and exclusive neighbourhood. It was one more of squalor than anything else, and accustomed to disturbances more strenuous and decidedly more vicious than this. But it was, at least, within the purlieus of the city, and supposedly under the domination of law and order. And now from the opposite corner ahead he caught the ray of a street lamp glinting on the rubber-cloaked shoulders of an officer as the man crossed the street and headed for the saloon. Jimmy Dale, as Smarlinghue, smiled thinly. Whoever they were in there, they were friends of Smarlinghue, the riff-raff, the rank and file of the citizenry of that sordid fatherland of the underworld in which he held so high a station. The character of Gypsy Dan's saloon guaranteed that. He turned quickly, pushed the swinging doors open, and stepped to the side of the ragged, unkempt figure at the bar who was yelling at the top of his voice. "'Forget it!' said Smarlinghue roughly. "'There's a harness bull in the move out there.' The man, too immersed in his vocal efforts and the liquor he had imbibed, paid no attention, but the barkeeper was alert in an instant. "'Thanks, Smarly,' he grunted. He leant across the bar and clapped his hand over the singer's mouth, effectually shutting off the flow of song. "'Close your face,' he ordered peremptorily. "'That'll be Riley out there, and he's all to the good if you'll give him half a chance, do you hear? That goes for the whole of yous.' The half-dozen loungers around the bar subsided. Comparative silence reigned for a moment, then a slow, measured step sounded outside, a nightstick rattled softly on the swinging doors, as though both in warning and in acknowledgment that the amenities had been observed, and the step died away. "'Thanks, Morley,' said the barkeeper again, as he once more leant back against the far side of the bar. The erstwhile singer blinked. "'Have a drink,' he invited cordially, and digging into his pocket he produced a fistful of bills which he waved with a lordly, inebriated air about him. Jimmy Dale stared. A moniker in the Badlands was always apt and incisive, and had been particularly so in this instance. He knew the ragged down-at-the-heels vagrant, as everybody else in the East Side knew the man. Beggar Pete. The man was known at times to do odd jobs, perhaps if pushed to extremity for food, and particularly for drink, but otherwise he lived a miserable, poverty-stricken existence. Not criminal, perhaps, just a drifter, lost to all sense of responsibility and self-respect. "'Hello,' said Jimmy Dale, half seriously, half facetiously. "'Who stuck you in his will, Pete?' "'Someone at the bar guffered.' "'A nice old geezer with gold spectacles that Pete croaked with a blackjack,' said the man. "'There wasn't no one else to inherit what was in the stiff's pocket.' Beggar Pete swung suddenly upon the speaker. "'That's a damn lie!' he shouted furiously. "'You think you's funny, don't you? Well, maybe you won't laugh so loud with a bust face, see?' Jimmy Dale edged in between the two men. Beggar Pete was huge-framed and, in spite of dissipation, muscular, and his face, working with rage, was indicative of a row that would bring more than Riley 
rapping softly an admonition with his nightstick on the swinging doors. "'Sure, I'll have a drink,' said Jimmy Dale, diplomatically. He nodded to the barkeeper. "'Suts for mine.' Then to Beggar Pete. "'Here's how, Pete.' Beggar Pete's scowl gradually subsided. "'You's all right, Smiley,' he said. He grew suddenly confidential. "'Say, it came my way all right.' It wasn't more'n half a hour ago neither. I'll tell yous. I was walking along and broke for fair, and an old gent goes brushing by in a hurry in the rain. The mouser thinks he's funny, but the old geezer did have gold spectacles, cause just after he gets by me, he stops and reaches into his pocket for a box of matches, and I sees his face under the umbrella as he lights his cigar. Then he goes on again, and as he puts the box of matches back in his pocket, I see something drop out on the sidewalk. I slips along and grabs it up. Beggar Pete licked his lips and scowled again at the little crowd. It's his purse, that's what it is, and a fat one. I ain't no saint, and just then I thought me luck was out, cause I thought he looked round and saw me picking it up. So I runs after him and ends it back. Say, he slips me what I thought was one buck, and what I guess he thought was only one two. But when I gets into Kelly's place that was near there, and had a snifter, it took all the money in the cash ridges to make change. See? Fifty, that's what it was. A fifty-dollar bill. Well, then suggested one of the crowd, to whom the story had evidently been retailed before. Set him up again, Pete. Yous must be dry talking about it. Jimmy Dale, included in the invitation which Beggar Pete promptly accorded, shook his head and left the place. He smiled a little curiously to himself as he went on again through the rain. It was an incident, that was all. An incident that could have no bearing on him in a personal way, that could carry with it no significance so far as he was concerned, save that it was one of the many little cross-sections of life, queer, bizarre, a scratch under the surface of things, here in the Badlands. Yet, naturally enough, it remained uppermost in his thoughts for a few moments as he walked along. He knew Beggar Pete, and he was not at all convinced by Beggar Pete's story. Benevolent, gold-spectacled gentlemen were not in the habit of handing out fifty-dollar bills, even on a dark and rainy night. There would always be a street lamp within a few paces under whose light the award could be made without any mistake on the donor's part. A five-dollar bill for the service Beggar Pete had rendered, yes. A fifty-dollar bill? No. He found himself growing more and more sceptical. Indeed, he was not sure, for instance, that the jibe the lounger at the bar had flung at Beggar Pete had not more nearly hit the truth to the extent, at least, that Beggar Pete had come by the money by methods that would not stand any very close scrutiny. Jimmy Dale shrugged his shoulders. One thing, at least, seemed certain. Beggar Pete would sooner or later come to grief, and perhaps the sooner the better. There were too many Beggar Petes who had drifted on the reefs to become broken hulks, worthless to themselves and a menace to others. He drew his coat-collar closer around his throat, what a beastly night! Head down against the storm, he ploughed along. Thank heaven he was not far from Kerrigan's now, just around the next corner. 
for all its evil-smelling, reeking atmosphere, where about the only air there was stole in like a sneak thief through the broken window-pane that was covered with cardboard, there would be even physical comfort to-night in the company of Bunty Myers and his fellow gangsters in that upstairs back room. There would even be a sort of compensation in the fact that he was under cover and in shelter, should the real object of his visit, as it probably would, prove as futile to-night as it had in the past. His face hardened suddenly. What was the matter with him? Was he growing childish, his thoughts feeble-minded and astray? Shelter? A bit of a rainstorm? Where was the toxin to-night? Where was she? What was sheltering her from a storm, not of pattering raindrops, but from one where every moment her life itself stood in peril, where her... He raised his head. Along the street, through the murk, he noticed a shadowy form, the only other pedestrian in sight. It was too far off in the storm to distinguish even whether it was a woman or a man wearing what might be a long raincoat. But strangely enough, unaccountably enough, yet nevertheless existent in his mind, was the consciousness of something familiar about the figure. And then, almost the next moment, his impression was verified in a measure that brought every faculty, alert and tense now, into instant action. The figure was turning the corner, passing under the street lamp. It was Mother Margot. He did not quicken his pace. He was Smarlinghue. His lips tightened grimly. Mother Margot owed the man she knew as the Grey Seal her life, but how far her gratitude extended he did not know. Perhaps not at all, in view of the fact that her life would not have been in jeopardy if the Grey Seal had not literally forced her into the situation that had so nearly proved fatal to her that night at Peddler Joe's. In any case, it would be trusting her very far, too far, farther than he would ever dream of doing, if he risked the consequences of handing himself over utterly to her mercy, in allowing even a suspicion to arise in her mind that the grey seal and Smarlinghue were one. A word of that, a hint, and Smarlinghue, the idol now of the underworld, would know instead a hatred and a vengeance that would not only bring exposure and disgrace to the name of Jimmy Dale, not only play into the phantom's hands and leave the toxin to stand alone, as prompted by that brave, unselfish love of hers she sought to do, but would cost him his life as well. And so, as Smarlinghue, though that was Mother Margot there, he could make no move to intercept her. But in a moment more he reached the corner. Mother Margot had disappeared. He nodded his head. She had gone in through Wally Kerrigan's side entrance, her objective beyond question of doubt, that upstairs room at the back. Jimmy Dale moved swiftly now. At last, then, there was something afoot again. Mother Margot was the mouthpiece of the voice, as she called the phantom. For a moment he experienced a sense of chagrin that he should have lost those few minutes in Gypsy Dan's saloon, for otherwise he would have been upstairs with Bunty Myers and the rest on Mother Margot's arrival, and Smarlinghue would have been introduced to Mother Margot, and— He shook his head again. No, he had lost nothing. His intimacy had not quite reached the point where they would talk before him. They would more likely have kicked him out. It was much better as it was. Better that Smarlinghue should not have been in evidence at all if the aftermath of this visit of Mother Margot meant anything that would bring him into any game that might be played tonight. 
and now he smiled with grim whimsicality as his thought of shelter came back to him. Instead of the back room upstairs, if he was to have any part in the proceedings whatever, he was much more likely to be a silent and unobtrusive occupant of the fire escape outside the window, than which he could imagine no place less sheltered or more uncomfortable in New York that night. The door of Wally Kerrigan's side entrance closed silently behind Jimmy Dale. It was utterly dark here. The clientele that favoured Kerrigan with its patronage, in so far as this portion of his premises was concerned, made no demand for any such extravagance as light. A footstep sounded from above. A woman's footstep. It died away, and a door closed. Mother Margot had run true to form. Jimmy Dale moved forward as a shadow moves, and began to mount the narrow stairway with which he was already so well acquainted. There was no sound. It was the silence learned in the days of the old sanctuary on the creaky, rickety stairs there, where an untrained step would have sounded the alarm from top to bottom of the tenement. He gained the landing. There were three or four rooms here, he knew, but save for a tiny thread of light that seeped out under the threshold of the rear room, which was the rendezvous of Laroque's gang, everything was in darkness. It was early yet, which might be one reason, and the stormy night another, why the other rooms were as yet evidently unoccupied. And now he was crouching against the door itself, his ear pressed against the panel. It was a possibility, that was all, a possible alternative to the uninviting fire escape. Again he shook his head, then turned swiftly to the window almost at his elbow that gave on the rear of the little hall. He had caught the sound of movement through the panels, even the sound of voices, but the words had been hopelessly indistinguishable. Cautiously he opened the window, slipped out on the fire escape, and, against the possibility of any of the occupants of the room stepping out into the hall to notice an opened window, he closed it again behind him. Another moment, and, flat on his face, he had crept along the iron platform until he lay beneath the window of the rear room. He would be able to hear now. He had taken no chances on that score. Open or closed, the window above him with its square of cardboard tacked over the broken pane could hardly be improved upon for his purpose. And now, keeping a little back from the wall, he raised himself up and peered in. Mother Margot was talking excitedly, gesticulating with her hands, while gathered around her at the table were Muller, Bunty Myers, and two men he had met there before, who, leaving aside a score of aliases, were known as the Kitten and Spud McGuire. A pretty quartet. Jimmy Dale's lip thinned, as the sense of sight gratified, he shifted his position, placing his ear as close to the edge of the window casing as he dared, without exposing himself to the risk of being seen. Yes, he could hear now, but— A dismayed frown furrowed his forehead. Mother Margot appeared already to have imparted whatever information had brought her there. "'Yous understand, don't yous?' she was saying. "'Cause if yous have got it straight, I'm going to beat it out of this, and get home and get dry.' "'It kind of took the wind out of us, that's all,' Bunty Meyer's voice responded in a puzzled growl. "'I thought the whole works was blown up and we was done.' "'I told yous once,' snapped Mother Margot. "'It's the panel in the wall.' "'Sure,' said Bunty Myers. "'We ain't deaf, and we got that all right. 
the middle one at the back of the room. But then, what's the use of waiting? He broke into a coarse, unpleasant laugh. I guess old miser Scroff ain't at home to queer anything. The use of waiting, returned Mother Margot tartly, is cause the chief says so, and cause some of you's pulled a bum play that he's got to make good, and I wouldn't like to be the one that done it, cause the chief is seeing red. Anyway, don't you's make no mistakes again. You's ain't to make a move until as near ten as'll give you's time to get away with it, but you'd be through by then, cause at ten the bulls get tipped off. All right, agreed Bunty Myers. And then, abruptly, as Mother Margot evidently started to leave the room, Say, wait a minute, Mother. Maybe you's have got the answer to something we can't figure out. What's the big idea behind the chief's keeping under cover? We ain't seen him for weeks. Nothing but telephones and messages. Where is he? Why don't you ask him? suggested Mother Margot acidly. Ask him? echoed Bunty Myers helplessly. How the hell can I, when I don't know where? That's the answer. Mother Margot's interruption was a cackling laugh. Who knows all I knows? You think me and the chief goes to a picture show every evening, and then spends the rest of the night together, eating hot frankfurters and stewed ice cream? Say, you's give me a pain. Good night. The door in the hall closed. For an instant, Jimmy Dale stood motionless. Then he turned, and in lieu of an exit, via the hall window, began to make his way down the fire escape. And now what? Go to Mother Margot as the Grey Seal, and force a detailed explanation from her as he had the other night? He shook his head. It wasn't necessary tonight, was it? He had learned enough, hadn't he? His mind was working swiftly, in a precise, virile way, as he descended the wet, dripping iron treads. The middle panel at the back of old Miser Scroff's room, and old Miser Scroff was not at home. That was clear enough, and there was no question but that Miser Scroff had money hidden away somewhere. It was only a wonder that it had not been taken from him before. The old man was almost senile. It was common property on the east side that he had been caught fondling and crooning over packages of banknotes in his room on more than one occasion. For more years than anyone could remember, the man, already old, had just kept on growing older in a solitary life in his sordid surroundings. He was supposed to have a small income from some source, but however small it might have been, it was certain he saved on it, for he never spent a cent save to keep absolute famine from his door. Undoubtedly he had money. Robbery, therefore, as the motive, was equally clear. And at ten o'clock, for some reason, the police were to be notified of the crime by the actual perpetrators themselves. Ten o'clock. It could not be much after nine yet. There should be at least half an hour, then, before Bunty Myers need be considered as a factor. Meanwhile, the Phantom was at work in an effort to rectify some misplay made by his underlings. Was it at Miser's Cross that the Phantom in person would be employed prior to the arrival of Bunty Myers and his confederates? Was it luck like that? Luck at last? If so, then— Jimmy Dale dropped from the bottom of the fire escape to the ground. 
and then, in the shelter of the lane where the fire escape had landed him, he broke instantly into a run. "'Not as smiling you,' confided Jimmy Dale grimly to himself as he ran. "'I can't risk smiling you. It's got to be the other way, in spite of a patched face.'" End of chapter 10《Chapter Eleven of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Panelled Wall. Jimmy Dale, a long coat sodden with rain, covering his evening clothes, crept up the narrow tenement stairs, crept along a bare and dirty hallway, and halted before a closed door. Softly, cautiously, he tried the door. It was locked. His fingers reached in under his outer garments, and then shot swiftly to the door again. There was a moment of utter silence, then a faint snip, and the door began to open guardedly, the fraction of an inch at a time. Another instant, and Jimmy Dale stood inside the room. The door closed behind him. A minute he listened, then the round, white ray from his flashlight lanced through the blackness swept its surroundings in a swift, comprehensive circle, and the low, startled exclamation, involuntary, before it could be checked, came from Jimmy Dale's lips. This was old Miser Scroff's squalid, hovel-like abode, niggardly alike in its furnishings and its cleanliness, since even cleanliness cost money, but—but—it was strange. He did not understand. He had not been very long on his trip to the sanctuary and back. It had not taken him long. Certainly it could not even yet be half-past nine, and yet it seemed as though, in spite of that, he was already too late. The flashlight circled again, but more slowly this time, as though puzzled and nonplussed itself. The small room was in dire confusion. The bedding from the cheap cot was flung here and there on the floor. The drawers of an old desk had been pulled out, and their contents strewn about and the desk itself had been hacked to pieces, as though on the chance that it might have possessed a hidden receptacle, while even the ragged strip of oilcloth that was the sole floor covering had been ripped up and flung into a corner. Where a hiding-place might have existed before, there existed now nothing but a pitiful state of wreckage. Jamie Dale's mind seemed to echo the confusion. It did not seem possible that Bunty Myers and his companions could already have been here. And besides, the flashlight's ray shot suddenly to the rear of the room. What had all this to do with the panelled wall? An ironic smile tinged his lips now. Yes, it might by a stretch of imagination be called panelled, but it was simply an extra height of boarding that ran up to meet the plaster all around the room some three or four feet from the flooring. He stepped quickly across the room and knelt as nearly as he could judge his position by the flashlight, in front of the middle boards. He nodded grimly. These were at least intact if nothing else in the room was. From a pocket in the leather girdle around his waist, he drew out now a small but incredibly strong and powerful jimmy. It would have been a useless waste of time to seek for any secret spring that, while it probably existed, was also certainly well and cleverly hidden. He was working rapidly now, the point of the jimmy prying tentatively into and up and down the joints of the boards. A low-breathed exclamation of satisfaction came almost instantly from his lips. The jimmy had slipped through one of the cracks into an open space behind. 
It was here, then, the hiding place of old Miser Scroff's hoard that Bunty Myers— Jimmie Dale stood suddenly erect, tense, every muscle rigid, listening. A footstep, low and stealthy though it was, had caught his ear from the hall outside. It was not another lodger. It was too cautious for that, too guarded. And for the same reason it could not be Miser Scroff. It was not Bunty Myers and his confederates, because there was only one footstep. The Phantom, then. The Phantom had required time for something somewhere, and he, Jimmy Dale, had dared to hope that it might be here. Luck. If he was in luck at last, he would play it to the full. He was crossing the room swiftly, without a sound. There would be a settlement this time from which there would be no escape. It was almost at the door now, that footstep. But he, too, was at the door, on the inside, crouched against the wall. A grim smile twisted his lips as he stood there, his automatic flung forward, his flashlight ready in his left hand. Here was a good place for that settlement, here in old Miser Scroff's room, here on the scene of one of the Phantom's hell-hatched crimes. There could be no better place for that final reckoning. The doorknob turned, the door began to open slowly. A form, shadowy, a little blacker than the surrounding blackness, bulked in the opening, then stole across the threshold, and the door closed. And then Jimmy Dale spoke in a cold, merciless whisper, as the stream of his flashlight cut through the black, and his automatic lifted to a level with the line of light. "'Put up your—' The sentence died on his lips. It seemed to Jimmy Dale that the room was whirling around him, that he was robbed of all power of movement, that his brain had lost the faculty of reason. The light was boring into a pair of brown eyes, startled, it was true, but brave, calm, self-reliant brown eyes that looked out from a wondrously glorious face, the only face in all the world. And then his pulses leaped, and the blood in a furious tide went whipping through his veins. The toxin! The toxin! Was he mad? Could it be true? The toxin! "'Marie!' he cried out hoarsely. "'Jimmy, is it you? I could not see with the light in my eyes. Oh, Jimmy!' Her voice faltered. Relief was there, but relief was not the note he called. It was love, yearning, the woman's soul that was in her tones. The flashlight, the automatic, were thrust into his pockets. She was in his arms. He held her close. Years had gone since he had held her there before. He had fought for this, risked all and everything for this, hoped for it when hope itself seemed dead, and now she was here, close to him clinging to him, and it was not just for the moment, not just a stolen, pitiful instant out of all eternity, but for always, for all time. He had her now. She would never go again. There was no power on earth would keep him from her side now. Half laughing, half crying, she struggled to free herself a little. "'Jimmy,' she breathed, "'don't you know that you're terribly strong, dear?' He released her a little, grudgingly, but still he held her close. His lips found hers, her eyes, her hair, the dark silken strands that, playing truant from under her hat, swept his face. Her hand had crept up and found his mask, slipped under it, and was resting gently against the strips of plaster on his cheeks. "'I—I I know, of course, about the night when—when when you got this,' she said brokenly. All the underworld has been talking about Smarlinghue. 
They very nearly caught you, Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy, why will you do it? I've begged you so, done all I could to keep you out of this. And now tonight again. What are you doing here? What brought you here? His arms tightened about her again. To find you, he said. She drew away in amazement, her hands on his shoulders now, holding him at arm's length. To find me? she echoed helplessly. But how could you have expected to find me here? You did not know. I sent you no note, no word, for after I heard about that night at Peddler Joe's and what happened later in the sanctuary, I made up my mind not to— He laid his hand softly across her lips. I have not been anywhere, done anything, since that night on the East River, Marie, he said quietly, except with the one end in view of finding you. And had I not found you again now, I should still have kept on in the same way. I am quite sure you know every move that Smarlinghue has made, and you therefore ought to know that I have already gone too far, that I have already been too close to the Phantom more than once, to have let anything you did keep me out of this, Marie. The fewer the notes, the more I should have worried, and the harder I should have worked. But that's all at an end now, thank God. There'll be no more separation. We'll work together from now on until we've found the phantom. For a moment she did not answer. Then she turned her head away. No, Jimmy, she said firmly. I cannot. I will not. Nothing has been changed since that night on the East River. I cannot prevent you from doing as you have been doing. But there's a great difference between your actions as the Grey Seal and as one who is known to be working hand-in-glove with Marie LaSalle. It, it would make it almost impossible for me to go on, for I, I could not do anything then without the fear of putting your life in danger. Oh, Jimmy, you do not know, you do not understand, and, and I cannot tell you. She turned quickly toward him again. Go, Jimmy, please, at once. There is something that I must do here. Jimmie Dale reached out for the door. "'We'll go together, Marie. Now,' he said calmly. "'I heard Mother Margot talking about Scroff's panel here. I was on the fire escape outside Carrigan's place. But that's what you mean, isn't it? But you are what I came for, so we'll go, for there's nothing else that counts here now against the risk of you being caught by Bunty Myers and his crowd, to say nothing of old miser Scroff himself turning up any minute to—' "'Miser Scroff is dead,' she interrupted dully. "'Dead?' he repeated in a startled way. "'Murdered,' she said, and then her voice broke again. "'Oh, Jimmy, I've failed miserably tonight. I, I've cost a man his life, I'm afraid. The least I can do now is to keep them from getting the money. It's in an old leather bag behind the panel. But that I must do. You—' You must let me work this out, Jimmy. I have no choice. If you force me out of here, or if you insist on staying to help me, then in an hour, two hours, somehow, Jimmy, I warn you frankly that I will get away from you again. I don't think you will. Not this time, Marie, said Jimmy Dale grimly. I've got you now, and I'm going to keep you, no matter what happens. She smiled at him wanly. "'Very well, Jimmy, if you think so,' she said quietly. "'Only remember what I've said.' 
Meanwhile, there is the panel. I can't go until I've got the money. She started across the room, only to stumble over the broken desk, and then Jimmy Dale's flashlight was in play again, and he followed her. Murdered, you said. He spoke quickly. Why? I don't understand, and I don't understand what has happened here. The place has been turned inside out. The panel, Jimmy, she answered. It's near the middle. Get it open. I'll tell you while you work. I'd already found it before you came in, said Jimmy Dale coolly. He was kneeling by the wall, the jimmy in his hand again. Go on, Marie. A joint in the wood gave with a low, rending, creaking sound. She stood at his shoulder, whispering swiftly. Some of the gang under the Phantom's orders inveigled Miser Scroff down somewhere in the neighborhood of that old junkyard near Kelly's saloon, with the intention of keeping him out of the way for an hour or two, while the rest of them came here and searched for his money. But Scroff was an old man, and the blow he was hit by the blackjack killed him, and the search here resulted in nothing. The jimmy pried away a narrow board from top to bottom. Jimmy Dale reached in his hand. Yes, there was something in here, a bag of some kind. "'How do you know all this?' he demanded. "'And if you know it, where was the phantom all this time?' "'Under cover,' she answered. "'I told you long ago that he was a man with a score of domiciles and a score of aliases. Lately he's been driven from one to another, and robbed of some of them by the Grey Seal.' "'I thought so,' said Jimmy Dale swiftly. "'Well, you've lost your case now, Marie. It would appear, then, that the Grey Seal has been of service.' So why should you attempt to keep him at a distance? Her hand found and touched his shoulder. It's no good, Jimmy, she said softly. Shall we call it a woman's inconsistency? I cannot give you any other answer. Another board came loose. Jimmy Dale frowned. What was the matter? He was not working with his usual deftness and silence. It seemed as though the creaking of the board could be heard throughout the building. "'You said you had failed miserably tonight, and that you were afraid you'd cost a man his life,' he said. "'You mean Miser Scroff?' "'No,' she said heavily. "'I did not know anything about tonight until after Miser Scroff was killed. That brought the phantom into it in a personal way. There had been no murder intended, and failure to find anything here would otherwise have ended the matter. But in old Miser Scroff's pocket they found— beside some stock certificates made out in his name, a dirty old piece of paper with a tracing of his room upon it, and a position on the rear wall marked with an arrow, so they knew then where their money was. But this was after the first search had been made, and the room torn to pieces as you see it, and though they knew then where the money was, there was a murder that had to be covered up. Jimmy Dale drew out a worn yellow leather bag from the aperture. He opened it, and uttered a sharp exclamation. It was crammed full of loose banknotes. "'How do you know all this?' he asked for the second time, as he shut the bag. The toxin shook her head. "'It is useless to ask me, Jimmy,' she said steadily. "'If I told you, I might as well enter into the partnership with you that you are so insistent upon. It would amount to the same thing. I cannot tell you.' I can only tell you that I know the phantom means to plant the crime on some outsider's shoulders, someone he has picked out as suitable, a seedy character who—it's horrible, Jimmy—will not have a chance for his life. 
the securities with Scroff's name on them are to be placed under the innocent victim's mattress. Then, with a panel rifled here, the police are to be tipped off about the murder, and where to find the murderer and the evidence. I did my best, I did all I could, but, but I lost the trail, and so I came here to save at least the money, and as a sort of last hope that somehow I might pick up the clue again. The only thing I am sure of is that the phantom was playing the part of an old gentleman with gold spectacles tonight, and— Jimmy Dale had taken the toxin's arm, and, carrying the bag, had started back for the door. But now he halted suddenly, as though rooted to the spot, and stared at her. "'An old gentleman with gold spectacles,' he ejaculated sharply. She caught at his sleeve. "'Jimmy,' she whispered tensely, "'you—' You know something about it. You, you've seen him. You know who it is they mean to railroad to his death for this. The room, his surroundings, even the toxin, had fled from Jimmie Dale's consciousness for the moment. Instead, there came again the scene in Gypsy Dan's saloon when Beggar Pete had told his story, which he, Jimmie Dale, had but so short a time ago dismissed almost summarily from his mind as having no personal significance for him. Beggar Pete and the gentleman with the gold spectacles. Beggar Pete and his sudden affluence. He had not believed Beggar Pete then, but he believed him now. There was no shadow of doubt but that Beggar Pete was the phantom's intended cat's paw, and that the snare was the low, viciously cunning handiwork of the phantom. Beggar Pete's story, once those securities were found beneath his mattress, would, out of its own improbability, only assure the man's conviction— Nobody knew how much or how little cash Miser Scroff had had. So this was what the Phantom wanted that extra time for, to plant those securities. God, if he could catch the Phantom at Beggar Pete's! No, there was a toxin here. He had her now. He would never leave her again. And besides, it was too late now. He knew where Beggar Pete lived because of late it had been almost a source of gossip on the east side, for the simple reason that, for perhaps the first time in his life, Beggar Pete now had a permanent address, the cellar of a somewhat questionable lodging-house run by a yegg named Harry the Dip, and this in return for the more than questionable agreement on Beggar Pete's part to make himself generally useful when called upon to do so. It was a long way to Beggar Pete's, almost across the whole of the east side. The Phantom would have completed his work by now or at least long before he, Jimmy Dale, could reach Beggar Pete's lodging, and that would— "'You know! Oh, thank God!' she cried tremulously. "'And I—I I was so afraid!' "'It is Beggar Pete,' he answered mechanically. "'Then quick, Jimmy,' she pleaded. "'There is not an instant to lose. You must get those securities before the police do.' He did not move. She shook frantically at his sleeve. "'You see that, don't you, Jimmy?' she cried again. "'Oh, there's not an instant, not a second to spare. And besides, the rest of them will be here any minute.' He looked at her. "'And you?' he said. "'I'll take the bag of money and see that it reaches the authorities,' she replied quickly. "'You can't be hampered with that. It will be all you can do to win the race against the police.' "'No,' he said fiercely. "'Let you get away out of my life again?' not for a dozen beggar peats. A strange smile, wistful, drooped her lips, and suddenly her eyes were wet, 
and as suddenly she reached up and drew his face to hers and kissed him. "'You are too big a man for that, Jimmy,' she whispered. "'And there is no other way, and—and besides, you know what I have told you. You are too big a man for that, Jimmy, and that—that is why I love you.' He held her close. "'It's no use,' he said hoarsely. "'There's been more planted on him than you know anything about. Enough so that the robbery here would almost cast suspicion on Beggar Pete without the securities being found at all. He's been spending more money in the saloons tonight than he ever had in all his life before, and he's accounting for its possession in a manner that no one would believe.' "'But there's a way out of that,' she answered quickly. "'A way that the Grey Seal has taken before.' take it again now, Jimmy, because it's a man's way, my man's way. He knew what she meant, but he did not answer. She was gathered in his arms. He could not let her go. He had given his all to find her. He could not let her go. Jimmy, she said, steadying her voice with an effort, every second that we stand here may mean that it has cost a man his life. With a low cry that seemed wrenched from him in agony, Jimmy Dale's hands dropped to his sides. Through the darkness that was now a strange mist before his eyes, he saw her pick up the leather bag, and then her whisper came to him. "'Thank God for you, Jimmy. I'll stand guard at the door until you're through.' He found himself at the rear of the room again, working with frantic speed in front of the broken panelling. He knew what she meant. It must be his mind, of course, that was functioning, governing him, and yet his actions seemed purely mechanical. From the leather girdle he drew out the thin metallic case, and from the case, with the tiny tweezers, he lifted out a diamond-shaped grey paper seal. If he succeeded in getting the securities before the police did, and if the police found here on the scene of the robbery the insignia of the grey seal that they knew so well, then beggar Pete, a worthless, broken hulk, would go free, and— Her whisper from the door now reached him again. "'Quick, Jimmy! They're coming now! I hear them downstairs! Quick, Jimmy! And—and— and, Goodbye!' It took an instant, no more, to moisten the adhesive side of the paper seal and stick it into place on the edge of the broken panelling, and then Jimmy Dale was across the room, and, the door closed behind him, was standing in the blackness of the hallway. She was gone. His face was set and rigid. Perhaps she was still somewhere here in the hall, but he could not see, and he did not dare call out. The stealthy tread of two or three men was distinctly audible coming up the stairs. He drew farther back along the hall, and crouched there in the darkness. Low whisperings reached him, indistinct forms clustered around the door of Miser Scroff's room, and then the door opened and closed again, and the hall was empty. Empty. Where was she? Still here? Still within touch, perhaps? A bitter smile curved his lips. He was beaten. Beaten by a worthless, broken hulk that had drifted on the reefs. A human wreck. He was crouched outside the door again, and now, silently, quickly, with a little steel picklock, he locked the man inside. If she were still in the hall here, she too would have her chance, enough time to get away before they discovered that grey seal in there and came pouring out of the room again. And then he went down the stairs, and in another instant the mask removed from his face, was outside the tenement, and racing madly through the night. And as he went he looked about him. 
He had hoped for a passing taxi or a vehicle of some sort, but there was only the torrential rain. And so he could but run. Time. It would take him all of twenty minutes, and it must be later than twenty minutes of ten now. And he paused for a second under a street lamp to consult his watch. Yes, it was a quarter to ten. At ten, the Phantom would notify the police, in some anonymous way, of course, but there was a little leeway, perhaps ten minutes, the time it would take the police to get to Beggar Pete's after ten o'clock. He ran on and on. Still no taxis, no vehicles, only deserted streets. It seemed as though he had run for hours. He did not stop to look at his watch again. He heard a clock from somewhere boom out the hour. Was he in time? He glanced up and down the street now, as he halted finally before a small, tumble-down, shabby dwelling-house. He did not know. At least there was no one in sight. Harry the Dip's door was never locked. His lodgers kept hours too uncertain and varied. Jimmie Dale smiled grimly, as, slipping suddenly into the shadows of the doorway, he stepped silently inside the place. Another item, this choice of lodging, even if it were the choice of necessity, that would not help beggar Pete's reputation in a jury's eyes. The cellar entrance, where was it? It was dark in here, but not silent. From upstairs he could hear talking and the sound of movement. And then his ear caught another sound. The sound of loud, heavy, stertorous breathing that seemed to come from a direction ahead of him. He risked his flashlight. He was in a short and narrow hall, and now he advanced cautiously. Yes, here it was, and here, too, was the explanation of those laboured, stertorous sounds. Under the stairs at the back of the hall, a door stood half open. The flashlight's ray played down a flight of bare, ladder-like steps, and coincidentally, Jimmy Dale's face set in hard, bitter lines. At the bottom of the steps, a little to one side, in a filthy cellar, sprawled on a torn and filthy mattress from which wisps of mildewed straw protruded blatantly, Beggar Pete lay in his drunken stupor. The man had already been pretty well along at Gypsy Dan's, and in the hour since then it was obvious that he had lost no time. Jimmie Dale's hand clenched. The sight seemed to fan a latent fury, a merciless passion, into flame. It was for this, to save this, a vagrant, a bum, a drunken sot, a beast, that he had lost all that was most dear to him in life tonight. It was for this that he had done what he had never thought to do under any circumstances, under any pressure, while life remained to him, lose the toxin again if once he ever found her. It seemed as though he could wish for nothing better than that this besotted beast should experience exactly what the phantom had prepared for him. And yet, mechanically, Jimmy Dale went down the cellar stairs. He stooped over the man. There was no danger of disturbing Beggar Pete. He pulled the man aside and overturned the mattress. A little bundle of stock certificates, held together by a rubber band, lay there. He picked them up. They were made out in the name of Heinrich Schroff. For an instant he stood staring from the certificates in his hand to the sprawled form upon the floor, and slowly, gradually, the hard embittered look on Jimmy Dale's face softened. Was he so sure, after all, that he'd paid too much? In his hand he held the death warrant of an innocent man, a fellow creature, sunken, low, it was true, but a human being with hopes and fears like his own, perhaps, though one, unlike himself, who had had only the rougher road to travel, where plenty was unknown, 
and life's sunshine meagre. He stooped again and replaced the mattress and laid Beggar Pete upon it. He was smiling now softly, as sometimes a woman smiles when her lips mirror her heart. And somehow he was glad. And then Jimmy Dale turned away and went out into the storm again. Tomorrow the city would awake to find that the Grey Seal had committed another crime. End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Little Sweeney. The air was heavy with drifting layers of smoke, as it always was in this back upstairs room of Wally Kerrigan's club, that was the hangout of Gentleman Laroque's alias the Phantom's gang. Four men sat at the table playing stud, and Jimmy Dale, as Smarlinghue seated a little apart, watched them now as he fumbled with the dirty frayed sleeves and wristbands of his coat and shirt, and fumbling then in his pocket, drew out a hypodermic syringe, its nickel-plating worn and brassy, its general appearance as disreputable as himself. How many nights had he come to this room, as he had come to-night, playing a game that was not a game of cards, with Bunty Myers here, and the kitten, and Muller, and Spud Maguire. How many nights! He had almost lost track of time. The wound in his cheek had healed. He had even resumed, in so far as an occasional appearance at the St. James Club, and here and there a social function went, his normal life as Jimmy Dale. He must have been coming here for many nights. Through half-closed, apparently drug-drowsed eyes, he watched the players at the table. Yes, it must have been for many nights. It was over a week since, his fingers tightened involuntarily in a fierce, spasmodic grip upon the hypodermic, since that night when he had held the toxin it once again in his arms in old Miser Scroft's room, and had lost her again. Since then he had continued to cultivate these men. They were only pawns, they moved only at the will of that unseen yet ever-present spirit of evil, the phantom, but to be one of them opened the avenue of a thousand chances that might lead to the phantom himself. He had had no other clue to follow. But so far nothing had come of it. They did not distrust him. Who in the underworld would distrust Smarlinghue, who had the entree everywhere? But they had made no advances toward offering him full membership in that unhallowed fraternity to which he knew they belonged. At times he had believed they had been on the verge of doing so, and that applied especially to Bunty Myers, who was the Phantom's apparent chief of staff. But there had been nothing definite, nothing concrete, nothing tangible. And yet, even in a negative sense, the nights he had spent here of late had not been futile. He was in possession of the fact that there had been inactivity, and that meant that the Phantom, whatever might be germinating in that master mind of crime, had for the time being been quiescent and, as a corollary to that, the almost certain deduction that no further blow had been struck at the toxin, that she was still safe. And this had been borne out by Mother Margot, who, so far, had always been the Phantom's mouthpiece. As the Grey Seal, and through the hold that, as the Grey Seal, he had upon her, he had continued to call her daily from her pushcart to the telephone and question her. 
but she had still protested vehemently each time that she had had no further word of any move, and he was satisfied that she was telling the truth, for the simple reason that he did not believe she would dare do anything else. But even so, unknown to her, he had still maintained, in so far as he could, a personal surveillance over her movements, and there had been nothing to disprove her statements. She still tended her pushcart in Thompson Street, she still lived in those rooms from which the Phantom, in the dual guise of Shiftel, the Fence, and Gentleman Laroque, who once had openly led this very gang here, had so mysteriously disappeared. Smarlinghue's face was vapid, but into the dark eyes behind the drooping eyelids there came a troubled gleam. Those rooms where the voice, as Mother Margot called the Phantom, had installed the old hag. What was the secret that they held? He was certain that Mother Margot did not know and twice again of late in Mother Margot's absence, and despite the toxin's warning that they were a trap for himself, he had explored them, searched them, and found nothing. And now the men around the table, the room itself, his immediate surroundings, existed only in a subconscious way in Jimmie Dale's mind. That was the negative side of the week just past. There was equally the positive side. Shiftel had returned to the underworld, not openly, not to his old quarters. At first the rumour had flown from mouth to mouth through the underground exchanges of the Badlands that Shiftel was back, that he had been seen a dozen times in the hidden places, the lairs, the hangouts, the breeding dens of vice, that crooks of his old exclusive clientele had talked with him, done business with him. And at first he, Jimmy Dale, had not believed it, and then he had seen the man himself, he was sure of it. Shiftel. Isaac Shiftel, alias Gentleman Laroque, alias Limpy Mac, alias the Gentleman with the Gold Spectacles, the Phantom. The man that the Tocsin had so truly said possessed a score of domiciles and, yes, entities. There was no better word, for in each of his disguises the man seemed to have established himself as a known and breathing entity in the life and surroundings of the particular character which for the moment he might have assumed. As witness Shiftel, the fence, known far and wide in the underworld, as witness Gentleman Laroque, long the leader of this band here, long the most notorious gangster in the Badlands. He had seen Shiftel three nights ago in the Green Dragon, a dance-hall of unsavoury repute, and Shiftel, the man who was the cause of his, Jimmy Dale's, returned to the life of Smarlinghue and the squalor of the sanctuary, the man who sought the toxin's life, the one man that he, Jimmy Dale, would gladly have sacrificed his all to bring to a final reckoning and account, had escaped him that night in the green dragon. He shook his head, mumbling to himself, almost mechanically continuing to play his part in the presence of these underlings around the table, even while his mind was far away. It was not his fault that Shiftel, once seen, had got away. He could not in any fairness hold himself to blame. He had caught but a glimpse of the man far across the hall, as in the swirl of the bunny-hug the dancers on the polished centre of the floor had opened for a moment and closed again. When he had reached the other end of the room, Shiftel had disappeared. That was all. It was strange. What was the game? What was the meaning of this reappearance? The man was running a tremendous risk, and the motive must certainly be commensurate with the danger. 
What was that motive? Shiftel was wanted, and wanted badly, by the police for his connection with the diamond stolen from Jathan Lane, the murdered banker. There was no such person, of course, as Shiftel. It was the Phantom. Shiftel was only one of the Phantom's disguises to be put on or off at will. But it was the known character of Shiftel that the police sought. Why had the man shown himself in that character, lived it again? He need only have discarded it utterly, never returned to it, and as far as Shiftel was concerned, he could have laughed at the police until the day he died. What was it? What was at the back of that crafty brain whose evil genius had prompted this move? No little thing. Had the toxin's note that he, Jimmy Dale, had found amongst the mail Jason had handed him when he had appeared at home for his lunch yesterday, any bearing on the phantom's motive? He did not think so. Rather, out of the ruck of explanations that had suggested themselves, and which were for the most part hopelessly untenable, had finally come one that he was almost ready to accept. Smarlinghue's lips twisted in a grin, apparently one inspired by Spud McGuire as the man scooped a pot on a barefaced bluff. Well, why not? Even it was a backhanded compliment to himself. The Phantom was shy of funds. Time after time of late, he, Jimmy Dale, as the Grey Seal, had forestalled the other and snatched away the fruits of the man's criminal schemes. Where, in the past few weeks, the Phantom had counted upon thousands, many of them, and had even spent lavishly to pave the way to the expected profits, he had received instead not a single penny. The Phantom, therefore, unless he possessed the reserve wealth of a Croesus, was certainly shy of funds. Yes, that was it. It must be it. And as almost irrefutable evidence of this was the fact that the Phantom, as Shiftel, was said to be in communication again with some of those who composed that carefully selected circle of crooks who had been tried and successful business associates in the past. And that was why, too, it was as Shiftel, and not as Limpy Mac, not as Gentleman Laroque, or any one of his other aliases, that the Phantom had ventured, cautiously it was true, but nevertheless had ventured out into the underworld again. The Toxin's Note it came uppermost into his mind now. It was the first sign of existence she had given since that night at old Miser Scroff's. His lips were still twisted in a smile, but there was something cold, forbidding, far removed from smiles that seemed suddenly now to weigh upon his spirits. She had written, but had only been to accentuate, as it were, her decision. What she had said that night when he had been so sure of taking his place again beside her. Alone. That was it. Alone. It was her love, of course, her great unselfish love, that prompted her to try to keep him out of the shadows, out of her dangers. The note reiterated it. He knew it word for word. Dear philanthropic cook, I see that you are incorrigible. If I thought that it would do any good, I would implore you again. Oh, Jimmy, I do implore you to leave all this to me and to go back at once to your own life. I'm half mad with fear for you. There's something, some trap being laid, and I cannot find out what it is. I only know that the phantom has become suspicious that behind the grey seal's repeated blows there is more than a mere desire to reap where the phantom has sown. I only know that the phantom is convinced 
that he himself is the Grey Seal's one and only object. And in turn, the Phantom means to move heaven and earth now, to get the Grey Seal first. Oh, I know you won't do as I ask you. I know you too well. I know that, if anything, this hint of danger will perhaps even urge you on. But I had to write. I had to warn you because I am afraid, and because I know that in some way, with all his hideous cunning behind it, the Phantom is laying a trap for you that— Bunty Myers swung around in his chair and made a grimace at the hypodermic syringe with whose needle Jimmie Dale was now pricking the skin of his forearm. "'Say, can that, Smarley?' he complained. "'You's give me nerves. You's been monkeying with that skirt gun for the last half hour. If it won't work, for God's sake go down to the chinks or somewhere else and hit a pipe.' The door opened. Mechanically, Jimmy Dale restored the hypodermic to his pocket. He was staring at the doorway. It was not the sudden appearance of that hag-like, black-shawled figure that set his brains at work in swift, lightning flashes, and brought every faculty he possessed into play to preserve the indifference, even apathy, that became the supposedly drug-dulled Smarlinghue. For Mother Margot, he knew, was a frequent visitor here. It was not Mother Margot who caused his pulse to stir now. It was the man who had stepped into the room behind her. Little Sweeney. It seemed somehow to dovetail and fit most curiously into his thoughts of Shiftel of a few moments gone. His hand, inside his pocket, as it released the hypodermic, closed instead upon his automatic. He kept staring at the door, behind Little Sweeney. Was there still someone else? The last time these two had been together, there had been another with them. That night at Mrs. Kinsey's, when they had tried to rob the old deaf woman of her savings. There had been another with them, then, Limpy Mac. But Limpy Mac was also Shiftel, also Gentleman Laroque, in a word, the Phantom. Was Shiftel, or the Phantom, in whatever guise he chose to assume, there behind these two tonight? Little Sweeney had not been heard of or seen since that night. This was Little Sweeney's first appearance, and— The door closed. Little Sweeney, with a nod that embraced everybody, leant nonchalantly back against the door and lighted a cigarette. Mother Margot stared around the room, and then her eyes fixed on Jimmy Dale. He saw her glance swiftly, then, interrogatively, at Bunty Myers. Bunty Myers waved his hand. "'Smarley, meet Mother Margot,' he said offhandedly. Maybe you knows little Sweeney. Meet Mother Margot. There was something exquisitely ironical in this, wasn't there? If Mother Margot but knew how many times and under what circumstances they had met before. Mother Margot loosened her shawl and slumped down in a chair. Everybody knows smiling you, she grunted. Sure, said little Sweeney from the door. Glad to meet you both said Smarlinghue cordially. There was silence for a moment. Mother Margot folded her hands patiently in her lap. The silence, prolonged, grew embarrassed. But Auntie Myers broke it. "'Beat it,' he suggested uncompromisingly to Jimmy Dale. Jimmy Dale, as Smarlinghue, vacant-eyed as he looked around the room, rose from his chair. It was a little awkward, a little awkward to carry it off as though it were quite a matter of course, he grinned around the circle. "'See you all again,' 
said Smarlinghue pleasantly. Little Sweeney opened the door. "'Damn sick in here, this smoke,' said Little Sweeney, as Smarlinghue shuffled through. "'I'll leave it open till the room clears out a bit. Night, Smarly.' "'Good night,' said Jimmy Dale, still pleasantly. But out in the hall, and as he turned and went down the stairs, his lips tightened into a straight line. Little Sweeney was no fool. The fire escape, just within reach, just outside the window of the room where the broken pane mended with cardboard, had once before supplied him, Jimmy Dale, with a vantage point from which he could both see and hear all that went on within, was barred to him now by the open door. Also the open door, with Little Sweeney standing there, offered no alternative to a prompt and unhesitating exit via the stairs from even the building itself. Jimmie Dale's lips drew still tighter together as he went on down the stairs. In spite of Smilingue's high station in the underworld, he had been treated with scant ceremony. But it was not the hurt of pride in that, as one of the elite of gangland, the honour and deference that was his due had been withheld from him, that brought the grim, set expression to his face now. It was the consciousness of defeat where he had foreseen victory. He had counted too much on the intimacy that he had first cultivated and then believed he had established with Bunty Myers and his fellow gangsters. He had believed and hoped that he was not far from being upon the verge of initiation into their unholy fold, of being invited, in plain words, to become one of them. He shrugged his shoulders as he stepped out on the street. Well, he had lost on that score for the time being, at least. He was wrong, that was all. But he had burned no bridges behind him. Tomorrow night, Smarlinghue could still go back there and be welcome. And as for tonight, well, he was not yet through with tonight. There was something undoubtedly afoot again. What was it? He crossed to the other side of the street, and just opposite the side door of Wally Kerrigan's club, where he could watch that door unseen, he slipped unnoticed into the shadows of a high flight of dwelling-house steps. What was it? He could not, as Smarlinghue, accost Mother Margot when she came out, and by the time he had gone to the sanctuary and become the man in the evening clothes that she knew as the Grey Seal, she would as likely as not have left Kerrigan's and have disappeared. Queer! Somehow he was not interested in what was afoot tonight in so far as its specific nature was an essential feature. He was more interested in this sudden appearance of little Sweeney, in conjunction with the fact that Shiftel, too, had broken cover. It was the Phantom that interested him, and Shiftel was the Phantom. Was there any connection between this return of both little Sweeney and Isaac Shiftel to activity? He meant to see. The two had been very closely allied that night at Mrs. Kinsey's, and particularly later on that same night in Limpy Mac's hangout under Senyat's tea-shop. And so, somehow, he smiled grimly, he was more concerned with little Sweeney than with Mother Margot tonight. Little Sweeney might lead him to Shiftel. Mother Margot he had already tried too often to have any hopeful expectations raised on that score. To reach the Phantom in the guise of Shiftel, or any other, was the one thing in life that he sought. To meet the man once again, face to face, was why he was here now, why night after night, and day after day he still risked his life playing this precarious role of Smarlinghue in the underworld. Even a chance was worth while. It was rather curious that little Sweeney and Shiftel, both of whom had dropped completely out of sight for so long a time, 
should both now have made their appearance again and so at the present moment he was exceedingly interested in little sweeney jimmie dale crouched there in the shadows pedestrians passed up and down perhaps a quarter of an hour went by then the side door of kerrigan's opened and a shawled figure stepped out and scurried away mother margot and then presently the door opened again and little sweeney and bunty myers came out together jimmie dale slipped out on the street and on the opposite side followed the two men as they went down the block at the corner they separated and jimmie dale took up little sweeney's trail block after block the man traversed jimmie dale hugging the shadows of the buildings kept a position as nearly opposite the man across the street as he dared wary always of a corner around which the man might turn and with too great a distance separating them disappear into some place should that be his objective before he jimmie dale could round the corner and pick up the trail again little sweeney walked fast obviously unconscious of pursuit and obviously with some set and fixed destination in view the chase headed down toward the waterfront the quarter now was one of small stores and dwellings dark for the most part save for the saloons jimmie dale's face set grimly it was not an over-inviting neighborhood and then suddenly little sweeney swung around the corner jimmie dale quickened his step and reached the corner himself in time to see the other after skirting a fence that enclosed either a vacant lot or a store-yard of some sort turn abruptly at the end of the fence and disappear in an instant jimmie dale silent in his movements though he was running now crossed the street and in turn was skirting the fence there was a lane beyond of course that was it little sweeney had not entered any house he had just turned around the far corner of the fence and jimmie dale stood suddenly stock still out from the corner of the fence flooding the sidewalk came streaming a powerful ray of light and then little sweeney's voice rasping of course it's me shut off them damn lights the light disappeared as quickly as it had come footsteps crunched faintly in the lane receding jimmie dale edged quickly forward to the corner of the fence and peered cautiously around it it was quite clear now there was nothing mysterious about the light that had flung its beams across the sidewalk it was even commonplace from a rickety-looking metal garage which was perhaps twenty-five yards back from the street and in which there stood an automobile someone had sent the headlights playing along the lane for a moment jimmie dale stood there watching there was a single incandescent light burning in the garage which illuminated the place dimly and aside from little sweeney who was just stepping inside he could make out the forms of two men standing beside the car he dared not enter the lane of course it would be the act of a fool a chance sound those headlights switched upon him and the slouching bent almost decrepit figure of smarlinghue drew back and the next instant after a swift glance around him to make sure that he was unobserved with a spring lithe and agile as a cat he swung himself over the fence from the sidewalk and dropped without a sound to the yard on the other side he began to move noiselessly along the section of the fence which flanked the lane it ran straight to the edge of the garage he'd observed from the street and yes it ended there he was in luck he was crouched now against the wall of the garage itself which obviously though it was too dark to see served to complete the enclosure in lieu of fence at this corner of the yard he could hear them talking now as plainly as though he were inside for he was separated from them 
only by the thin metal sheeting of the garage, and furthermore, just above his head, shoulder-high, where a faint light seeped out. The window was open. "'This is a sweet, juicy place for a meeting,' Little Sweeney's voice grumbled. "'What's the matter with it?' another voice demanded, with a hint of truculency. "'It's as good as anywhere else, I guess, and the blamed sight better than most. I told you as I'd to make a trip first with some swag for a friend of mine.' "'Oh, all right, Goldie,' said Little Sweeney, placatingly. "'All right, I know you did. Forget it.' Jimmy Dale raised himself cautiously, and, back at an angle from the window-sash that precluded the possibility of being seen, looked inside. His lips tightened suddenly. The other two were no strangers, either to anyone in the underworld or to the police. Goldie Klein and the Weasel. Goldie Klein was one of the cleverest box-workers in the business. The Weasel, a shriveled little runt, was without a peer as a second-story man. It was a Weasel now who spoke. "'Me?' he said. "'I tell you straight I wouldn't touch them stones on a bet if anyone but old Shiftel was going to fence em, cause there ain't no one else could get away with them. The Melville Dane Emerald Necklace? Swipe me. There ain't a stone in the bunch that ain't known all over the lot, and it'll take some shoving, even by Shiftel, to catch in on em. The lady with the name part in the middle'll be—' "'Close your face,' said Little Sweeney politely. You've seen Shiftel, haven't you? And he's settled that to your satisfaction? All you fellows have to do is to get the stones tonight and leave the rest to him. Sure, said the weasel blithely. I ain't kicking. I'm only saying that I wouldn't go in on the deal with nobody else but Shiftel. Well, spill the rest of it. We're to slip him the stones as soon as we pinches them. That's understood. And just come down here to tell us where he's laying low tonight and where we're going to find him. So let's have it. Jimmy Dale leant forward a little in strained attention. Shiftel. The one man he would risk, that he had risked, limp and life and liberty to reach. He had made no mistake in following little Sweeney. And then a blank look that changed swiftly to one of bitter dismay settled on Jimmy Dale's face. The roar of the engine starting up had suddenly drowned out all other sound. No, it was subsiding a little now. He caught Goldie Klein's voice. "'Ah, we can talk in the car. I gotta get that job I was telling yous about done before ten o'clock. That's the only thing there's any hurry about. The necklace job don't come off till the early morning when the dame's gone bye-bye. Jump in, Sweeney. We'll drop yous anywhere yous like.' They were gone. The car, Little Sweeney, the weasel, Goldie Klein. Jimmy Dale stood there alone in the blackness of the yard. He could not follow them. They were gone. It had seemed that success at last had been actually within his grasp. It numbed him now, somehow, that it had been so swiftly and unexpectedly snatched away. He had little or no chance of finding Little Sweeney again tonight. He might, with luck, pick up the trail of Goldie Klein or the Weasel somewhere in the underworld, but— He had turned away from the garage, making his way back toward the street, and now he halted abruptly, staring into the darkness. Had he lost his wits? What was this that his subconscious mind had kept whispering over and over to him as the key note of everything from the moment the name had been mentioned? Melville Dane. Melville Dane? That was in his own world, wasn't it? They were his own friends. Strange. 
Curious. Yes, he remembered now. Soon after he had ventured home again, following his absence from the city, due to that night at Pedler Joe's, he had found an invitation to some affair, a reception, if he were not mistaken, at the Melville Danes for tonight. He had sent his regrets, it was true, but he was on too intimate a footing with them to have that make any difference. And now Jimmy Dale moved on again, reached the fence, and gained the sidewalk on the other side. He was also well acquainted with that emerald necklace, a priceless thing that seldom left the shelter of its safe-deposit vault. Mrs. Melville Dane was evidently wearing it tonight at the reception. He started on along the street. A word of warning, then, to the Melville Danes. Or the police? He shook his head. By the time Goldie Klein and the Weasel attempted the proposed robbery in the Melville Dane home, they would be in possession of something far more valuable to him, Jimmy Dale, than all the emeralds in existence. They would know where Shiftel could be found tonight. And I think, said Jimmy Dale softly to himself, as he quickened his pace, I think, smiling you, that we'll leave you at the sanctuary for the rest of the night. End of chapter 12